you know, when we're talking about the spring holidays and we're talking about leavening and unleavening and so forth, it's, it's a picture. It's meant to tell us something true and meaningful about our lives and what God is looking for. And the real deal is, what is sin? So the title that I have for today's message is, what is that sin that we should remove from our lives? When you look up sin in a you know, place like Wikipedia or something, which gives you a broad-based answer about, you know, what does the average person think about sin? It says that sin is an action of a sort that is likely to be strongly condemned. So sin is something that you do that will be condemned, right? Now, outside of the Bible, the specific behaviors that we condemn are constantly changing, always changing. I can think of people that I have talked with, people that I'm related to, and I will talk about something now, and I think, you know, 40 years ago, you would not have thought that was okay. But now you do. And what is good, what is evil, changes when we're talking about opinions, human reasoning. What was acceptable 50 years ago, today, could be considered neutral. Or it could even migrate from the category of sin into the category of virtue. So outside the biblical context, sin is what we say it is, that which we condemn, right? And the spirit of political correctness has always been there. You know, we have given it a new name, a new label, but it's always been there. God's word, God's word is where we must look for a definition of right and wrong that is not subject to the shifting sands of human opinion. Yet, even with Bible in hand, we are looking at sin and we are looking, therefore, at ourselves through a mirror that is obscured and blurry. I didn't make that up. Paul made that up. The obscuring and the blurring of what we see in the mirror isn't the fault of the scriptures. The fault is with us. And understanding sin calls for wisdom. And it calls for discernment and it calls for careful instruction to engage in the task of removing sin from our lives, we must be able to identify what is sin, which is more than just a run-through of God's commandments or other um, instructions that we find in Scripture about do this, don't do that. It's more than that. And I'm going to leave it to you to read the commandments and think about them. But I would like to work more on a definition. What are we talking about here? Defining sin biblically. All right, defining sin biblically. Sin is about behavior, human behavior, 
as related to the righteous character of God. That's where we get a sure definition of sin. So behavior that is to be strongly condemned because it violates and falls short of the righteous character of God. And here, here actually is where the mirror becomes blurry. That's, that's where it becomes obscured and blurred because words or human imagination or images cannot reveal the fullness of God's righteous character. And the, Bible, the Bible gives us essential information about God, which we as human beings are able to process, we're able to understand, and we're able to act upon, right? It's not everything that is to be known about God. He's beyond our ability to think every thought. But with the information that we've been given, we are expected to begin seeing the difference between good and evil and making the choice between good and evil. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 12 and 13, this is the scripture that I was alluding to. Paul has talked about big picture stuff, and then he, you know, he talks about love, and he talks about all the good things that should be part of putting on the mind of Christ. And then at the end he says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Or if you're reading the King James, it says, through a glass darkly, through an obscure mirror. Then we, looking to the future, I think he's referring to resurrection here, then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But now the three of these remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. So as I said, some matters of clean versus unclean, holy versus unholy, righteous versus sin, or leaven and what's not leaven, are sometimes a little tricky to explain. But we work with what we have. And I think, you know, sometimes that, that isn't enough for some people, but we work with what we have. And if we work with what we have in sincerity of heart and with humility and trust, I think we're doing what God wants us to do. Okay, so that's kind of like a, a caveat to start off the whole thing, right? So let's talk about sin and law. Sin and law. Go to Romans 7. And Romans 7 and Romans 8 are really Paul's um, tour de force, if you will, on the subject of, of sin. And I could just read those two chapters, but... Uh, that would be too easy, right? So let's take a look at Romans 7, verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Through his word, God 
is communicating to you. He is communicating, he's talking to you. And his laws and his commandments are the starting point for understanding what he is all about. And what eternal life is all about. And so to believe and to teach that his law is null and void is, if you think about it, is to close the door on knowing the character of God. It's not where you want to go. The information is being put out there so that you might know your creator. And you might know what eternal life is about. And so to teach against the uh, validity of God's law is to close the door on those very important um, learning issues. So we're in Romans. Go to verse 7. I'm, I'm not doing it in the same order that Paul's doing here. We'll go back to verse 7, which says, Okay, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. So no, 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 it's not bad. Nevertheless, I, Paul, would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So I wouldn't have even started to think about do or don't do had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So a fundamental concept of sin is that sin is defined by law. We are instructed to categorize certain actions and thoughts as sin. And the example that's provided here is do not covet, okay? If the law had not said you shall not covet, I wouldn't have known about it. And I think it's a very good choice. It's well chosen. I mean, Paul, he was a pretty smart guy. He thought about what he was writing. And I think he picked this out of the Ten Commandments for a very good reason. Um, supposing a bit here, I think it's a good choice because the commandment about covetousness touches on very clearly touches on both action and thought at the same time. Uh, to begin to evaluate yourself against this particular commandment, the 10th commandment, well, it calls for discernment, like I was talking about earlier. It calls for some wisdom and good judgment because having stuff is not a sin. But how we think think about having stuff can be. So there's a great example where you gotta use some wisdom in applying the commandment. Now let's read on in verse 8. It says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the, co the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, what he's saying there is, he's not saying that the commandment, which is just ink on paper or you know, shapes on stone, was causing something to happen. What he's saying is, I started to become aware of all kinds of stuff I hadn't thought about before. And using the example of covetousness, you know, we become aware that some actions can be good 
or they can be evil based on our attitude. And then we start realizing there's all kinds of different layers to sin. And then those layers go so deep. It's like the matrix. <laughs> it's like an onion where you, you, know, you peel back the layers of the onion. Well, there's another layer. There's another layer. There's another layer. And as you peel back all the many layers of an onion, then you start to weep. Because <laughs> onions make you cry. And the layers go so deep that we soon realize that there's really no end to the possibilities for sin within the human heart. Well, I thought I could just avoid sin by not doing this or doing that. But it also gets into how I do it, how I think about it. Ah. And if we apply this level of you know, forensic self-evaluation, which we, we might be prone to do at this season, you know, with the holy day coming, um, that could lead us to the conclusion that we're just doomed. I mean, it's just hopeless. There's so many ways for me to sin that I, uh, I just, I can't win. You know, I thought I was doing right, but oh, there's this aspect of my attitude which is off base. But that isn't the law's purpose. That isn't the law's purpose to make you feel doomed. That's not what the law is for. Go to uh, verse 13 here. So it says, does, does that, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, to show me you know, just how deep it goes within me, so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. Yeah, so basically what he's saying, yeah, I'm going to plumb the depths of what can and cannot be sin, and I'm going to find how deep and how wide it is. God's laws and commandments serve a purpose, okay? Which is to show you and me how deep and how far-reaching sin really is. It's like the comparison of, you know, deleavening your home and people will say, ha ha, you know, I missed the, I missed this the certain thing. I forgot to clean it out of my home. It's just, there's you know, leavening everywhere. Well, sin's like that. God's law, when you really think about it, you know, when it gets into thoughts and stuff like that, you realize, boy, it is not a simple business to get rid of sin in my life. The law's function is to show you what you need to get out of. You get it out of you, and you get out of it. That's its function. That's what it's for. But the law is just words on paper. It's just ink on paper, or, you know, if it was, you're talking about the tablets of the Ten Commandments, it's, you know, words chiseled out on stone. And as Paul says, the law is dead. It's inert. It doesn't, it's not alive. It's not living. It doesn't actually reach out and affect your mind causally. The active agents are God, who is a living being, working through Jesus Christ. The other active agent is you, and the power that connects you is the Holy Spirit. The law, it's just words on paper, it's just words on stone. So drop down to uh, Romans 8 and verses 1 through 4. 
It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, the law does not have the power to change you. It's, it, you know, it's a way you can see stuff. But for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So, I said that sin, you know, you could look into the depths of it and you can get really depressed. As I was writing this message, I have to admit, I kind of, oh, I started to get really depressed. But that is why we need to focus on Christ, which is also part of the spring holy days. They're just, you know, they're like peas and carrots. Uh, you've got the Passover and you've got the Days of Unleavened Bread. And you don't want your search for sin to overwhelm you. And it's great that you had the Passover and the sacrifice of Christ. And so Jesus Christ has made it possible for you to be set free from the penalty of death. But then you still have to make choices. You still have to make some choices if you are actually going to move forward in the Spirit. As it says here, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, sin and choice. Living according to the Spirit. It's a choice. The Spirit doesn't grab you by the scruff of the neck and force you to do stuff. To be led by the Spirit or not be led by the Spirit? That is the question. Well, God has given you the freedom to choose and to choose between good and evil, clean and unclean, holy and unholy, leavening, non-leavening, okay? I don't want to go on too much on that point because I talk a lot about free will. Let's talk about sin and disobedience. Now we're going to kind of get more into the nitty-gritty, okay? Sin and disobedience. Well, uh, remember my onion analogy? And layers and that. Well, the simple outer layer of sin is that through active choice, you or I can violate the law of God. I mean, that's a pretty simple idea, a concept related to sin. I can choose and I can disobey God's laws. Right. Not, and not just any law, you know. I mean, people might say, well, it's a sin to have a carbon footprint over X. You know, we're talking about God's laws here. Although, even with carbon footprint, I mean, if we will, willfully violate care for the planet, we're, we're more, <laughs> could be sin as well, right? But God's laws, if they're violated, we've chosen to do that. So, to get understanding about this simple outer layer of the onion, we have to know God's law, right? We have to know how it applies in a new covenant perspective. And we go through these uh, issues over the course of the year. We have to know how it applies in modern day life. 
I mean, some of the questions that come up about what is leaven and what is not leaven, no one would have had to answer that 200 years ago. You know, you read the ingredients on some of these packages, you know, and there's been sodium carbonate flows, right? Well, uh, stuff wouldn't have even been there, you know, and, that, and you know, oh, the, 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 there's baking soda in peanuts? Who would have thought? So the modern world requires us to have wisdom, right? Because certain things that apply now wouldn't have applied 200 years ago. We got to be wise. As it is with leavening, uh, so it is with sin. Well, what about society's laws? What about society's laws? Are they all just, you know, we don't care about society's laws? Okay, so uh, here's one. Most states have a law requiring seatbelts, right? Not wearing a seatbelt, wearing a seatbelt, is it sin? I mean, look, not wearing a seatbelt doesn't involve me doing anyone any harm, right? Uh, not wearing a seatbelt in the privacy of my own car. No one's there. No one's in the, even in the passenger seat, and I'm not wearing a seatbelt. That is not going to bring about the downfall of society and bring on social anarchy. So what's, what's, what's the harm? Is it sin? Is it not sin? I'm not violating any of God's laws, am I? Well, wearing a seatbelt, not wearing a seatbelt, is not a matter of sin. But how you think about and interact with civil authority, well, that is regulated by God's righteous commands, isn't it? God requires respect for authority, right? So something that doesn't look like sin can be sin, depending on how I'm thinking about it, right? This requires wisdom thoughtfulness, discernment. Okay. Sin and harm. I mentioned the example of, well, you know, I'm not doing anybody any harm by leaving my seatbelt off, am I? Right? A very subtle and effective argument, which is often leveled against biblical morality, is why call a particular act or thought sin if no one is harmed. Anyone ever heard that? I expect to see more hands than that pop up. Yeah. Why do you call that a sin if no one's harmed? And, you know, this is a line of reasoning that is most often used with regard to sexual conduct. Am I right? No, I, who, who's harmed? You know, consenting adults, all that stuff, right? Well, the concept from the scriptural perspective is that sin is to be considered sin against God. That's where the harm is. In addition, it could also be sin against yourself, but let's just focus on your sin as something that is against God himself. So, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And verses 2 through 4. This is uh, David, and he's been a very bad boy, and 
he's gone through his whole episode of adultery with Bathsheba, and uh, I think it's also meant to incorporate the uh, transgression against Uriah. But he's got this song of repentance, and verses two through four say this. Paul, I mean, sorry, David speaking here says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me and against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I mean, you know, David's sin was, it could have been pretty secret, right? You know, no one needed to know, really, except him and Bathsheba and maybe Joab. So let's go to Genesis 39, another example. I thought it was interesting as I went through these examples that they're related to sexual immorality. Uh, Genesis 39, verses uh, 7 through 9. Uh, Joseph, okay, it says, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Verse 7, and, and uh, after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, okay, come to bed with me. Let's have sex. But he refused. All right. He refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He trusts me. Everything he owned, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I mean, I don't think she was going to tell anybody, right? She was hot to try, right? So the sin, no. He wasn't going there because he knew it was a sin against God. Okay, one more on this. 1 Thessalonians 4. So this is another one of those areas where, you know, when you start digging in, you start thinking about sin and thinking about getting sin out of your life at the at the spring holy days, it starts getting really deep if you look into it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality again, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So sin is, you know, sin is not about us being out of whack with the universe, you know, that new agey stuff, you know, wow, I just, my karma's not right with the universe. That's not what sin is about. Sin is about your relationship with God. I mean, sin can be something you did to another person, it can be something you did with another person, or it can be something very private. But either way, it causes harm. Because even the private sins harm your relationship with God. And they cause separation. They bring it about that there's wrath. And it needs to be dealt with. 
And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, through sin you can harm yourself. Right here, right now, you know, I'm not just talking about your potential for eternal life. You can harm yourself right here, right now. Some of the things that people do, that we do, and I put the example of drugs up there, but you could also put in, you know, sexual immoralities. They harm us because sin affects the mind and it doesn't affect it in a good way. Okay, so falling short, missing the mark. There are a lot of words in the Bible that are used to, uh, or that are translated as sin, all right? And in Hebrew and in Greek, there are all kinds of different words, and they're translated as sin. One of the main words in Hebrew is uh, kata, okay? Kata. And Hebrew is a very um, picture, action-oriented language. Kata means to miss the mark. To miss the mark or to lose the way, you know? Think of the, the, the path that diverges in the woods. And you went off into the weeds. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word was chosen, and to, I think specifically because it carries the same meaning, the same word picture, to miss the mark, okay? And Paul actually even, you know, he, he takes it beyond that and he really draws it out and says, Okay, the analogy, maybe it's not working for you. Let me, let me explain it better to you. Romans 3, verse 23. Paul digs in and he says, okay, this is what we're really talking about here. Missing the mark. Uh, Romans 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if the target that you're aiming for is to become like God, put on the mind of Christ or so forth, you know, and, and therefore become part of his eternal family, then because of sin, your arrows, ding, are hitting the ground or flying over the target and off into the woods. You've missed the mark. That's what it's getting at. Or if the path that you want to follow is the one that leads to life everlasting, then through sin, you've lost your way. And you've wandered off into the bushes. So the word there is meaningful. And we'll, we'll come around to it again. But I think it's helpful. Because that means, wow, there's a lot more to sin than I thought. It's not just hitting the wrong target. It's also not hitting the right target. Okay, so let's take a look at another aspect of sin. It's kind of like a going through all the different ways, facets of sin. What about our sinful nature? You've probably heard about that, your sinful nature. You're born a sinner, right? You're just bad to the bone. Are we pre-programmed to sin? Are we pre-programmed to sin? There's a biggie. I'm not going to do it justice. I know I've talked about it before. I'll dig in a little bit, but not too much. As human beings, in the flesh as you know, created beings made of the dust of the ground, we are, we are created by God. And uh, when God created everything, we go back to Genesis, and after he'd finished creating everything, what did he say about it? It is good. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so 
human beings are, are good in the sense that they are perfectly fit for the purpose which God intends. Which is a temporary material existence into which a spiritual component is put, right? Built in, if you will, spirit in a human being that gives this material being this, uh, I think we used to call it a clay model. Remember those days? This material being the potential to move on to everlasting existence if God decides that that's a good idea. In the flesh, we are incomplete. Good for the purpose to which God has designed us for, but we're, we're, not, we're not complete. Okay? We fall short in so many ways. We fall short of the glory of God in, in big, fundamental ways. And, you know, just thinking about what we are and how we're designed, um, we lack the power of life within us. We don't have that. We will die. But we can receive the free gift of everlasting life from God, be complete, right? Okay, so that's another way we fall short, if you think about it. Um, here's the one that Paul was kind of getting at. We fall short because we lack the holy, righteous character of God. We are not filled with the holy, righteous character of God by virtue of being made out of the dust or by virtue of being given a spirit within us. The holy, righteous character of God is something that we can grow into. We have the potential to grow into it. So, the flesh, let's talk about it a little bit, all right? One aspect of the flesh is that the flesh is fundamentally selfish, okay? That's just the way the flesh is. It is designed to look out for itself. Why? Well, so that we can survive. It's a good thing. I mean, you're, you're made to take care of yourself on a sufficient enough level that you don't walk out into traffic. You're designed to survive. You're fundamentally selfish, okay? Uh, a shark, also made of the flesh, right? A shark hunts and kills, not because it's evil, but because that's how sharks live. If a shark stops hunting and killing, they'll die. They'll stop, you know, there won't be any more sharks around. And human beings hunt and kill and eat and make babies and all kinds of stuff. That's how we survive. That's how we continue to exist. But human beings are not animals. We're not mere animals. Through God's word, we have the potential to learn that there is a right and a wrong way to do all these necessary things. And I think, you know, God's spirit would dominate. You'd think, well, how do I hunt? How do I kill? How do I eat? How do I make babies? Right? 
There's a good way to do these, righteous way. There's also a not good way to do all these kind of things. That spirit that's within you, that's within all of us, combined with the written word of God and the power of God's Holy Spirit gives us a different way to see ourselves. And this is how we start to see the potential for that to be sin. Well, it looked okay, but actually it could be sin. We get that kind of ability and understanding and insight, discernment, whatever, because of all these things that God's put into us, and mostly through the Spirit. And we learn to compare ourselves to the holy, righteous character of God. And that's when it starts to get real. We're in Romans, um, go to chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Okay, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now the mind governed by the flesh is death. It's a dead end. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. It has potential and good potential too. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. I mean, it's selfish, right? It does not submit to God's law, nor indeed can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, and he's writing to you and me, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but we are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, your flesh and blood bodies, because of the spirit who lives in you. Potential. God's law defines sin not to beat you up. And God's purpose is not to lay down all this law so that you feel like a wretched, horrible person. That's not the goal. It might be part of the process, but it's not the goal. God's purpose is not to make you feel hopeless, but to give you a goal. And we could say that God's written standard of righteousness is aspirational, if you will. Right. And if God's plan for spiritual creation were compared to a classroom, for example, well, the law could be considered part of the syllabus. Okay? This is stuff we're going to learn, folks, and, uh, or an outline of what the class is all about and, and, and it's what it's going to teach you and you know, you know, what you'll get when you graduate and that sort of thing, right? Now, along the way, you may fail, and uh, you know, some of your assignments you'll, you'll do badly on, you'll get an F, and you'll sin. But God is willing to forgive you those sins through the blood of Christ. What is important is that you learn. We're in Romans still, so go back to chapter 7 and verse 21. 
So I find this law at work in me, Paul writes, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law in my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. So there's, there's, there he is, you know, he's kind of saying what I've been saying. I look at all this stuff and I just think, what am I gonna do? It's hopeless. It's so, it, you know, sin permeates everything I think and, and everything, it's, it's, it's impossible. What a wretched man that I am, okay? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my, but in my sinful flesh, a slave to the law of sin. If we only look to the law as a way to recognize our failure, we could become depressed, filled with despair. That's not what God wants for us, not to be hopeless. But God, through Christ, allows us to put our sin behind us, to move forward. That is his grace, if you will. Okay. All right. A good heart and an evil heart. So over the past, I'd probably say 300 years, mostly since uh, Rousseau, human thinkers have put forward the idea that if we just dig down deep enough into the human psyche, it's fundamentally good. Okay? That's the, 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 that's the latest trend of the past 300 years. However, you know, we see stuff going on around us. We see sin. We see injustice, so forth. So this, this human essence, which is fundamentally good, has, been come, has become corrupted by external forces, the things that are happening outside of us, like society or culture or religion. These have corrupted us and turned us into many monsters. So if we can just eliminate all those external corrupting forces, everything will be good, right? Now, Scripture warns us against that kind of wishful thinking. Go to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Scripture says, no, 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 no. You dig down deep into who and what you really are, and that, that isn't what you're going to see at all. Scripture warns us against that. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. And I'm reading from the NIV here. And uh, in my mind, I remember the King James. But this NIV says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I looked into the words, and I think the NIV's got it pretty good. I think the King James says, The uh, heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can, who can understand it? The NIV actually makes a lot of sense there. Let's take a look at the human heart. It's deceitful and incurable. Okay. I mentioned this earlier as an example. The human heart desires sex, right? 
And we know if we understand God's word properly that sex is not wrong. But how a person pursues sex can be wrong. And so your flesh can trick you into thinking this will be okay. It's deceitful. Right? You have to be on top of it. The scripture also says here that the, the human heart is incurable. Right? I take that as uh, meaning it, it, it can't be fixed in and of itself. The human heart cannot, cannot really see reality from God's perspective. And so it leads us to sin. It cannot fix itself. It takes something from outside to fix it. It cannot become what God intends. And as I mentioned earlier, it is incomplete. Because it needs the spirit. As the scriptures say, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickens. The spirit that gives life. Okay. What about sinful thoughts? Oh, this, this is where we get into the deep stuff, right? Okay. I used to have some interesting conversations with this uh, with my son. Matthew 5, verse 22. Go to scripture on this. Matthew 5, verse 22. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think that applies conversely for females as well, but men are particularly prone to that. So let's get down to it. All right, is the thought itself sin? Is having that flickering image in your mind sin? So let's say a person has hateful or lustful thoughts, but they never act on them in word or in action. Never, you never hear a peep from them about, about it, and they never act on it. Have they sinned? Now, digging down into the privacy of the mind, well, that seems like an impossible standard. If, you know, if I had, if, if, the, if, if it had been set, the bar had been set high before, this seems to set it so high that now, well, I, I know, you pulled me out of the pit before, but this time I'm lost. If you get down into the privacy of, of the mind, it, it, it seems impossible. Just another opportunity for hopelessness and despair. But consider this. And again, this calls for wisdom. If a person has hateful or lustful thoughts, and they're in their mind, and they recognize it, and they refuse to dwell upon it, and they choose not to act upon them in word or in action, Aren't they overcoming sin? So let's go to Matthew 15. What's important here? Matthew 15, verse 18 through 19. Jesus uh, is talking about what's clean and unclean. What's important, what's not important, that sort of thing. 
hand washing is the issue here. Matthew 15, verse 18 through 19, Jesus says, you know, it's, it's, it's not about the hand washing and getting a speck of dirt in your mouth or anything like that. He says, but eight, verse 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come out of the heart, and those are what defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus' teaching is that you deal with sin where it begins. I think that's the real thing he's getting at. Deal with sin where it begins, which is in the mind. If we don't deal with it there, then it's going to express itself in ways that are very sinful. James 1. I think it's, it's, it's not just... The scriptures are not just trying to find just yet one more way to make you feel horrible about yourself, but to show you, okay, here's how to deal with the sin. Deal with it in the mind. Try and deal with it in the mind. Uh, James 1, verse 14 through 15 say, Each person is tempted. Uh, actually, let's back up. Verse 13 it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. What James is getting at here is saying that allowing lustful thoughts, covetous thoughts, you know, in unjust thoughts, stuff like that, uh, hateful thoughts, let them roll around in your mind. You know, like, you know when you were a kid, you'd have a hard candy, sweet candy, and you'd keep it in your mouth, like, you know, tic-tac, you know, see how long you can make this tic-tac last. And you roll it around in your mouth. And you can do that with sin, too, right? You can just, yeah, I like that. Thinking about it makes me feel good. Right? You can do that. Letting, it, letting that happen leads to enticement, which leads to action or word. That's what James is getting at. Jesus is also saying, just deal with stuff in your mind. That's the best place. Don't wait until it's action. Sins of omission. James, we're in James, so go to chapter 4, verse 17. It says this, If anyone knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So this is moving into a little bit of new territory here. I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but uh, you, can, you can sin just by doing nothing. <laughs> wow. So, you know, you might want to crawl off to a cave somewhere and live in isolation, but no. Biblical sin is not just misdeeds that are perpetrated against uh, God or fellow human beings. We can also sin by doing nothing when something ought to be done. So we sin if we hate our brother, right? But we sin if we neglect to love our brother. For example, I mean, ways that we ought to love our brother or sister, generosity, hospitality, fairness, respect. 
And this love that we're to have, it actually also begins in the mind. And God's instructions are that we do dwell on these thoughts, do dwell on these things, God says, I, I know. And so that our thoughts do lead to action in word and in act. Sins of ignorance. Go to Leviticus 5, verse 17. Leviticus 5, verse 17. Okay. If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they don't know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. Whoa. If you violate God's commandments in some way, even though you are totally unaware, either that you're doing it or that it's something that should or should not be done, you are still accountable. You are still guilty and subject to punishment. Ooh, I told you it goes deep. <laughs> so to say something like, well, okay, she didn't really know any better though. You know, and you know, you hear stuff like that, you've probably said it yourself. Yes, yes, I know that, 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 that I know that's what happened, but but she didn't know any better. Well, that is true, but it doesn't make the penalty go away. It's probably a really good opportunity or reason to extend mercy. But you know, if it wasn't a sin, then you wouldn't have to be merciful, right? If the person had, uh, sorry, if the person does become aware of the sin, even though they didn't know about it when they did it, they still have to repent. Even though I didn't know about what I did two weeks ago, now that I know about it, I have to repent, right? Go to Acts 3. So you might have to dig into your recent past to boot. Don't overdo it, but uh, 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 this requires wisdom. So Acts 3, verse 14 through 17 say, this is uh, Peter speaking, and he says to the people gathered around, you, he's speaking to Jewish people, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, that's Jesus, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and Noah's made strong. He just healed this guy. In Jesus' name, and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold all along through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. What is he, what's the next word? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You did it. You didn't know any better. So repent. So you have to repent of things that you know, I didn't even know. Okay. One more. Sins of conscience. Go to Romans 14, verse 1 through 2. This is talking here about some issues that were going on in this congregation in Rome. It says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. 
One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And then drop down to verse 23, where it says, uh, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Okay, so sins of conscience. And again, the specific issue in Rome was vegetarianism, or people going around saying it is a sin to eat meat. To which Paul the pastor says, well, no, it isn't a sin, but if you convince yourself that it is, then you better not eat it. And, and I had this same conversation with someone about leavening, and they asked me, well, is, this, is this leavening? And I said, well, I don't, I don't believe it is. But I had to say, but if you are convinced that that is a form of leavening, then you better get it out of your house. Now, from, you know, from time to time, people ask me questions about specific behaviors. You know, is it wrong to do X? Or is it okay to do Y? And sometimes I have a clear yes or no based on scripture. But usually people don't come to me with those kind of questions because they have Bibles themselves and they can answer those questions, right? Um, a lot of times it's on disputable matters where all I can offer is an interpretation of scripture. And this calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom. The verse there, we didn't read it, verse 22 before in Romans 14 says, uh, Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves of. So if a person convinces themselves that a certain behavior is okay, right, and the matter is disputable, well, that might be an instance where the heart is being deceitful. Right? I really want this, so it's probably okay. Beware. On the other hand, if a person convinces themselves that a certain behavior is, is sin, when the matter is disputable, that might be an, an example of spiritual immaturity, maybe, I don't know. But in those cases, this is my take on it, I do not think that God is going to condemn anyone for being excessively strict with themselves. That's not how I see God. Unless... And here's where you, unless, unless it becomes a point of pride or a matter that causes strife and division within the congregation. And then once again, we get into something that can be sin, but for reasons you didn't expect. Matters of attitude. So sin is deep wide and it's kind of painful to go through but don't lose heart remember that together with the days of unleavened bread and the whole picture of getting sin out of your life we start that off with the passover which says your sins can be forgiven so in conclusion defining sin by human standards is bogus right <laughs> counts for nothing those who are led by God's Spirit will look towards God's Word, which in uh, Hebrews, fourth chapter, says God's Word is like a sharp, two-edged sword. It's sharp, and it cuts both ways.
can get you this way, and it can get you that way, and it's sharp. And this understanding of sin calls for wisdom. It calls for discernment, and it calls for careful and constant instruction.